0: Again, we're dealing with leadership today and the scripture out of Paul's second letter to his young protege, Timothy. Notice what you find in these verses of his relationship, not only with Timothy, but his knowledge of his family and then his words of encouragement. Particularly, you're going to hear these three words, fan into flame, reignite in you what God has brought you. Listen with leadership in mind as Shannon reads.
1: I'm grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience as as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois, And your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self discipline. Holy wisdom, holy word.
0: Now, as we come to this gospel, these words are so familiar to us. The the idea of being light, the idea of being salt are going to mean even something greater, I hope, by the end of the sermon this morning. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of the gospel?
1: You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built up on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works And give glory to your God in heaven. This is God's word.
0: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I want to start the sermon this morning with a number of questions for you. And, And as I ask these questions, see if you can picture someone's face in your mind. Who taught you leadership? Who do you continually seek to emulate? What was it about them that made you want to be like them? What did they teach you? More importantly, what did you learn? How did they lead? Was it with an iron fist? Or was it with gentle encouragement? Or might it have been something in between? Was it positive? Was it negative? What did you learn from that? And how have you taken that leadership and applied it to what you do? You know, friends, we come into this place in a a church having experienced all kinds of leadership, all kinds of things that have influenced us in the way that we choose to deal with life every day, in the way that we choose to volunteer, in the way that we choose to be engaged not only with the church but with the world. Most of us come to this as some kind of hybrid, taking those positive experiences that we've seen or tried to emulate or heard, even those negative experiences that we've had, and somehow try and combine them together to create a greater good, to learn, to lead, even to serve. Last Wednesday night, the Vision Task Force met again, and again at the very beginning of that meeting, I brought this scripture back to them once more time, one more time. It is the same scripture that we studied back on March 4th at the leadership retreat that took place in Friendship Hall, across the hall. I want to read it again, just to set the table for where we're headed in the very brief time in this message this morning. Hear the words again Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude, everything you do, every conversation you have, every relationship should be done with the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? Take that in. Friends, last Sunday we examined one of the essentials. It was number three on the list, really. It was worship. And we, I talked again about preparing for worship. As soon as you get out of bed on Sunday morning, and as you get into your car, and as you drive here, as you walk from the parking lot, and you enter into the doors, as you spend time out in the gathering place, the narthex, out there and particularly as you enter into the sanctuary that in every one of those kinds of (laughs) movements on sunday morning that you prepare your hearts for entering into this holy place this sanctuary and the essential for worship is that every bit of worship be done with excellence god is worth that so that set the foundation for where we're headed now as i said Number one essential and number four essentials are the ones that we're going to study this morning. Here's number one. And believe me, I think about this pretty much every day. A vibrant and healthy church will have a strong, confident, risk taking pastor. That pastor will have the heart of a servant and will, with confidence, take thou authority. As is said at every United Methodist ordination ceremony, take thou authority. As a priority, that pastor will seek to identify, build, train, equip, and support leaders and ministries for the work of Christ through that local church. That was, as we did the research, looking at these ten pieces was absolutely unquestionably number one on the list. A vibrant and healthy church will have that person as a pastor. Man or woman, whatever it is, those traits need to be inherent in that pastoral leader. Friends, I remember my ordination. I was going to do this just a few minutes ago as I came up. This was the stole that was placed over my shoulders on that ordination down in Southern California. I'm going to lay it here for now. Part of what I remember is that as we approached ordination um, on that day, and it was always it's always the high point of annual conference, no matter which annual conference it is. It's just such a moving event. Usually, it's one bishop who comes up and lays hands on. We 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 joked in the class of my ordination class that it took not just one, but it, it really took four bishops. Yeah, we were that kind of struggling group. But I remember the bishops, I can still see their faces. They, they were just an incredible group. One was the bishop in Ethiopia, and I, I keep thinking of Christy, uh, Christy McLean. She's doing such good work there. And I remember him, he was our guest speaker at annual conference in California Pacific. And, and he was one who came up as, as we approached ordination. The other was Bob Hoshabada, who is the bishop now of the Oregon-Idaho conference just south of us, but who grew up and began and, and did ministry here in this conference. And and Bob and I have known each other for, for many, many years. The third was a very special person uh, and was the, the bishop in residence at my seminary at Claremont School of Theology. And then the fourth, the fourth is Marianne Swenson, bishop of the California Pacific Annual Conference. And Marianne, in, in many ways, and I grew up together, and, and she was kind of one of my mentors as I began doing camping ministries. And my first leadership, and Paul, Pal- I was thinking about this this last week, of my first time of leading a small group at Ocean Park was with Marianne's sister-in-law, Jeff's sister. But those were the four. Those were the four. And I will never forget that day. As I came down and Dorothy came up and Grant Hagia, who is now our bishop here, was my superintendent there. And all gathered around as I knelt there and hands were laid on my shoulders and my hand was to be laid on the Bible promising that I would follow the truths found there. And they came through the ordination covenant and a prayer to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you at that moment, there was no question but I could feel and still do, even talking about it. The presence, the power of the Holy Spirit pulsating through me and everyone else. And then at the end of the ordination service, these three words are said every single time. Now, Brad, she said, take thou authority. Take thou authority. I will tell you, I've struggled with what those three words mean for most of my 21 years of pastoral ministry. I remember going back, and and everyone, and Shannon will tell you too, that when you go through ordination at the beginning of the process, you go through three tiers of psychological evaluation. I don't know how I I, I made it through. (laughs) But I remember, I remember the guy who did the, the, the evaluation up here in the Northwest and 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 I remember walking into his office as we have this, you know, my heart pounding, not sure, you know, how the, I was going to come off on this, and first words out of his mouth were, you know what? I have such deep concern about your superintendents and your bishops. <laughs> what are you talking about? And he said, because you, you struggle with authority. You're, you're that kind of maverick kind of guy. You're, you're going to continue to do this. You know, the this entrepreneurial hearts are going to drive people nuts. And you know what? I, I didn't think he had a clue, but looking back over 21 years, boy, he had it spot on. <laughs> I still drive him crazy. And you know what? I love driving him crazy. They need to be driven crazy every once in a while. Pushed a little harder. But in that take thou authority piece, I also thought of those four bishops. And I looked at that Philippian scripture and listened to this. Those bishops were four voices of significant encouragement. They were tough in their tenderness. And believe me, that's possible. It's a struggle we all have, but they were tough in their tenderness. They showed deep compassion, not only for each of us, but for innumerable places throughout the globe, in the world. They taught, and I wish we could have captured this even more at General Conference over the past two weeks, that we don't have to agree to still be like-minded as long as we're centered in Christ. And they loved, friends. They loved in ways that I may never attain, but I will certainly strive toward them. They taught us that real power doesn't come out of vanity, control, or conceit. What that does is simply veil insecurity. Real power comes out of seeking to serve rather than seeking to be in power. True servants see power in very different ways through a different lens. And each one of those bishops, every one of them was humble but in their own way. Their humility came out in different ways. But there was no doubt but that every one of them centered their lives by seeking to continually have the attitudes every day of their lives that constantly centered on Jesus Christ. Maybe the most significant thing that I saw from those four is that they recognized those times that they failed. And they talked about them openly. Did not ever try and hide that failure. But believing that with every failure comes a deepening understanding not only of ourselves, but what we need to be in our communities. Our not only centers of faith, but beyond these doors. Failures must teach us. They must. Every failure has the potential to teach a life lesson. Take thou authority. Take thou authority. What I hope you've heard so far is that leadership comes, and even these pieces of Philippians two, one through five comes in a variety of ways. And that brings me to the fourth essential: leadership within the church. Listen to this one now. I've expanded it a little bit from what you have in your list in your bulletins. The expanded version reads this way A healthy and vibrant church will become more solid as the pastor models leadership, as leaders build relationships within the congregation. The foundation of the church beyond Jesus Christ will be based on trusted relationships between the pastor and leaders, and from leaders moving into the congregation. There must be a process that develops those leaders and builds trust in all relationships, pastor, leaders, and congregation within themselves. And if done well, it will create a level of trust that allows for significant risk-taking within a congregation, within the church. And if done well, it will create a level of trust that allows for significant risk-taking in the church. Trust builds opportunities for risk. Taking risks builds trust. And it continues to be an ever-deepening cycle if we do it well. The combination of these two essentials is very, very powerful. That leads me to Aldersgate. It certainly led me here ten months ago. I want to talk about leadership within the church very briefly. You know, leadership within the church is a tricky wicket. It's a tricky thing. Particularly as you look at the fact that for a great extent, to a great extent, we are an all-volunteer organization. Are we not? If you looked at the hands that were raised as Paul asked about where you served, look at how many of those hands went up. One of the things that, that I hear from other clergy is, is I'll get a call, because I guess I'm some KG veteran at this point. I, they, don't clue them in. Um, is The question, invariably, is how do you fire a volunteer? It's a tricky thing, isn't it? But what, what happens often in churches where, where people are engaged in things that don't respond to their own giftedness, in places where they've maybe served too long or or where they're not overly comfortable with someone else coming in and trying to serve is there is this power struggle. You ever experienced a power struggle in church? Anybody? You don't talk about it right now but 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 know that they're there. They are there. What happens often is these folks who are struggling with whatever their role may be are are feeling somewhat burned out. Let's just say to use the Matthew scripture that their saltiness has has lost a little flavor because they've, they've tried so hard to do a great job. Or the light has been dimmed some over time. And what happens out of this is often negativity. It's often those who may, without intending to, push others away because they don't feel like they're either worthy or competent enough to do the job that they're doing. Often, I think, in churches, it's based, to some extent, in fear. Fear of the loss of power. Fear that they're not doing a good enough job. Fear that nobody who steps in behind them will have the ability that they have. Or fear that they won't do as good a job. Or fear that somehow... They're not doing the job as well as they might. Fear is never, ever a good motivator. Ever. Ever. But what will happen in a church that is vibrant and healthy is that there will be developments of, of training and other opportunities to move more toward that Second Timothy piece. Where look at what he did is he Paul surrounded Timothy, knew his family, knew his gifts, knew his abilities and took him under his wing in such a way that he was able to encourage and empower him to be the best possible servant leader he could be. Interesting, later on they part ways and Timothy goes off and does kind of his own thing, now empowered and equipped. So where are we empowering? Where are we equipping? What I'm asking us to consider today is a shift in the culture of the church. Going back to that Philippians 2, 1 through 5 scripture, and particularly that last sentence, that everything we do, everything that we do, every conversation we have, every piece of instruction that we seek to offer, every time we come into a place where we could assist someone else to serve, every committee meeting, every task force meeting, every time we gather, every time, we come together and every single one of us enters into that relationship, that conversation, that room with the attitude of Christ Jesus. To the point at which we even stop for a moment at the beginning of that committee meeting, as we're making coffee for coffee hour, as we're beginning to greet people in worship, as we gather for trustees or finance or staff parish or worship or any committee, as we come together as a choir or a bell choir, everywhere we gather, every single time we come together, every conversation, everyone is based solely with an attitude of Christ Jesus. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We are a healthy and vibrant church, but we can get better. It's essential for me in the, in the position of taking thou authority to be able to come to you with this kind of message once in a while to say to you, friends, love each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Spur each other on to love and good deeds. Don't beat each other up. Don't tower over others. If they do things a little differently than you, give them a slight hug and say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is a culture that we need to have at the foundation of everything we do. I invite those who are helping serve communion to come forward. I want you to remember what happened at this table that night. That Jesus was there, gathered with his disciples. And oh, by the way, did any of his disciples that night believe that they were somehow leaders? The answer to that question is no. No. They were followers at that point, And what Jesus was doing, even beginning to gather around this table, was beginning to undergird them with clear instruction about what leadership is. Leadership, first and foremost, in the church of Jesus Christ, is servanthood. Servanthood. Now listen to the words again. On the night that he was betrayed... Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat of this, remember. Keyword there, remember. Remember how I lived. Remember how I loved. Remember how I have given myself up for others. Remember that. This is my body, he said, broken for you. Remember. And after the supper was over, he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, that new beginning. What's so great about being people of faith is that every day can be a new beginning. He took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, remember Remember the way that I lived my life to the point of death. I gave myself up for others. Remember to serve them.